This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and a very warm welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name's Nick Barley, and I'm the director of the festival. And uh, there are some events which we programme when I just can't resist taking on the role of the chair myself. I, I hope you'll forgive me for that indulgence. But tonight, it's a, a real cracker. Um, I have to warn you, uh, for those of you who are slightly faint-hearted, that, that there is some material tonight which will involve uh, swearing, drugs. <laughs> Why'd you look at sex? me when you said swearing? Sex, drugs, and rock and Sex, roll. drugs, yeah, well, uh, anything could happen in this event tonight. <laughs> um, tonight we welcome two of the most exciting and challenging writers who are operating anywhere in the English language in the world at the moment. So we're going to start off by giving them a really warm welcome. Ryan Gattis and Marlon James. <laughs> now, both of them have written books which are based in gangland, based on real events which happened in recent living history, which have multi-perspectival voices, so many different voices. Uh, and they're both essentially, in my opinion, based on a kind of relationship with America. Well, one of them set in America, mm -hmm. and one of them set in and around America, uh, American culture. So they're really about the effect of American culture on our, on our recent history. Let's start with you, Ryan. Ryan Gattis, based, uh, raised in Colorado, now living in Los Angeles. Author of four previous novels, but really your breakthrough has come with this wonderful book, All Involved. Um, Let's just set it up to start with. Tell us, uh, okay. you know, we're in LA, we're in 1992, yep. real events. Tell us what was happening. Well, uh, LA was already in just, just such terrible shape, waiting to hear the verdict uh, of the police officers who had been accused of beating Rodney King. Um, there was just rage in the air. And so Rodney King was, was a guy who'd been... Uh, African-American motorist. Arrested. Who had been arrested and beaten. Yeah. Uh, just off the 210 freeway. And uh, there was video footage taken of his beating. And it was done by uh, a guy named George Halliday who actually called the police station afterward and said, hey, I've just recorded you know, your police officers beating someone. Do, do you want the footage? <laughs> and the mm. desk sergeant said no and hung up. It might never have happened. Um, but I think it's an interesting parallel to at least, and I'm sure we might touch on it later, I, you know, this was when camcorders were only recently commercially available, but now everyone has a camcorder in their pockets. So we're seeing a lot more stuff going on in America. So. And the events in your novel unfold a few hours after this, the, a jury has acquitted the police officers yes. of any crime. So, so there we are. They're free. Mm -hmm. And yeah. L.A. is waiting for, for the response. Yeah, there were multiple flashpoints throughout the city of LA. In downtown, there was an enormous demonstration just outside Parker Center, which is the police headquarters. Uh, but where it really uh, started to get dangerous was Florence and Normandy, uh, which is in Florence area, Watts area. And the LAPD actually retreated. And that's when the gang steamed into the intersection and took over. And it just it went from there. It got from bad to worse. And it went on for six days. It was a six-day riot. The uh, National Guard had to be called in. The Army came in. Uh, it was uh, an enormous, uh, just awful, awful thing. And uh, I think it's, 
it's worth saying it was the worst civic disturbance in the history of the United States. Over yeah. a billion dollars in property damage, 11,000 fires, 8,000 ar arrests. I mean, it's, it was absolutely crazy. So the novel takes place over these six days when L.A. was literally on fire. Absolutely. And what did the, the, the gangs who were operating in the city do? They took advantage of, of that absolutely. to some extent. To yeah, settle some scores, to engage in some in looting. Yep. Uh, and things spiraled pretty much out of control. I mean, wh what essentially happens in a rioting situation is a justice vacuum because all the emergency personnel go to the areas of the greatest need. But that basically opens up these entire swaths of what essentially is a, a county that's over 5,000 square miles. That's what L.A. County is. At the best of times, it's policed by 7,900 law enforcement officers, but in 92, there are over 100,000 gang members. It's impossible, even at the best of times, but when everyone is somewhere else, uh, all kinds of old scores are, are getting mm -hmm. settled. It's, it's essentially about crimes of opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And your novel focuses primarily, not exclusively, primarily on, on the Mexican side of the story. The, the, the yeah, lat Latino the Latino yeah. American communities. Mm -hmm. I, I, what I th I'd like to suggest we do to try, try and get a sense of this, because there's many, many different voices in the novel, is well, let's pick a, a couple of voices and uh, sure. give us a really brief reading just to give a sense of the, of the characters who are driving the novel along. Sure. And then we'll come over to you, mm -hmm. Marlon, and we'll, we'll hear about yours. And this is Payasa. Uh, she's a 16-year-old uh, gang member. And she's been told her older brother, who is not a gang member, has been killed by the rival gang. And she ends up uh, at the, the site of the killing just to confirm it. I'm so mad, I'm shaking. All that anger I have for Ernesto, the same dude that raised me when mi padre died, that made sure I always ate up my chilaquiles and had lunch for school every day, changes over. I actually feel the click. I feel that shit deep inside me like a light switch flicking on. How all of the anger I had for my brother walking home the wrong way just goes away. And how at the exact same moment, it blazes up at the fools who did this. And I need to know who did it worse than I ever needed anything. Seeing his face like that. Shit, seeing his face like that. I know... I can never go back to who I was before I saw. So you start to get a sense of the kind of passions <coughs> that there are. This innocent guy has been dragged along the street and murdered, brutally murdered. His sister is getting angry and she wants to get revenge on the people that she thinks did it. And so begins a spiral of killings. Yeah. And, and there's freedom to do so because law enforcement is somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. Now, to the extent that there is law enforcement, um, I, I suppose we, we get that uh, or in, this, in, the, in the voice of, of a Croatian guy who's, mm. a, who's a fireman yeah. who's tr doing his best to go around, put out fires, and, and in some way kind of deal with the, the hell that's going on. But he's quite yeah. a sympathetic character. Shall we just have a listen to his yeah, voice? Yeah, absolutely. There's a helicopter overhead. Looks like Channel 7. Shining a light down on us like we're at the bottom of a deep, dark hole. The people who live around here, they know what that actually feels like. They know how ugly life can get. Everybody else, the people sitting at home, watching this unfold on television, they have no idea. Those are the people shocked by the riots. 
They can't comprehend them because they don't understand the other side. They don't understand what happens to people with no money who live in a neighborhood where crime is actually a viable career path, where there are no other opportunities. And I'm not excusing it or condoning it or saying it can't be avoided. I'm just saying that's how it is. Great. So here we are. I'm just setting the scene now, the landscape. And I just want to let, we'll let the fires in Los Angeles burn for a moment <laughs> in our minds. And now we're going to move over. We're going to move back uh, 15 years or so, 1976, mm -hmm. yeah. to you, Marlon James. Uh, just to introduce you, uh, born in Jamaica, but now living in Minnesota, Minnesota yeah. USA, right? Yeah, right. Uh, and I first became aware of you a couple of years ago when you took part in the Edinburgh World Writers' Conference events, which took place in the Bocas Literary Festival in Trin right, uh, Trinidad and Tobago. It was a sort of an international discussion on national literature. Exactly. Right. And Irvin Welsh uh, mm -hmm. came, went there. And so w uh, when this new novel was published, I was really sure we wanted to invite you to Edinburgh because I'd heard <laughs> about you from Irvin and uh, he was excited. Mm -hmm. And then I noticed actually that on the, on the jacket of the book, A Brief History of Seven Killings, it, it, Irvin's quoted. So obviously he, yeah. he got to read it. The most original novel I've read in years, a haunting incendiary work. That's what Irvin Welsh says. Mm -hmm. So... And now, of course, it's been man l sorry, long-listed for the Man Booker Prize, so yeah. it's, it's set to get a lot more attention. Right, mm -hmm. 1976, Jamaica, what's going on? What's not going on? <laughs> it's, it's, it may have been the, the, the only time that, and this is all rumor, so I totally believe it, that, that, that um, Mick Jagger, Carlos the Jackal, uh, Michael Manley, Roberta Flack, all these people, you know, all these CIA guys are all in the same place at the same time. 1976 was set to explode from January. In January, um, <coughs> a shipment of flour was delivered to Jamaica, and within days, people started to drop dead. At one party, wiped out nearly an entire family. And, and things were just getting more and more built up. Um, the, some IMF... IMF, um, and if, IMF um, let's just call them IMF people, <laughs> came to Jamaica and it just exploded in violence. The, the ambassador for Peru was murdered. So by the time we get to December, when uh, Bob Marley agrees to do this peace concert, because they sense things was going to explode, we, the, the, the whole point of the peace concert was to, make, to, to cool things down. And then Marley gets, gets shot. They tried to kill him execution style. They didn't just try to kill him. They tried to wipe out everybody in that house that night. And in a lot of ways, that was, that was, um, that was a climax. That was a sort of straw that broke the camel's back, to use a cliche. I was six years old when it happened, so I didn't have a sense of it. But I had a sense of my parents' fear. Because there was a sense that... If they, could, if they would go after him, there was an unwritten rule in Jamaica, nobody touches Bob Marley. Nobody touches the tough gang. He was the guy who go in between the, the different it, right. political parties and he sort of understood all of them. And, and they all came to his house, which is what, what, why it was such a violation because it's not just Marley, it was the house. The house at any given moment would be people who on any other day would be killing each other, playing dominoes. And then, just think of surreal 1976 is, where on, on the front porch would be the Prime Minister of Jamaica, two of the most notorious killers we've ever had, Mick Jagger, 
and Keith Richards <laughs> and Bob Marley all together in one all perfect. together in one spot. Perfect. So so it's so to it's a sort of this Rastafarian Camelot, <laughs> and uh, in come these men who just violated. They just tried to kill everybody and tried to kill what it meant. So it really was a it was it was a genuinely shocking moment in a very shocking year. Yeah. So Michael Manley was the president, uh, the prime minister, prime minister yeah. at the time. But but really, the guys in charge were the, were the drug lords. Who they were they the weren't drug lords yet. What made them in charge was drugs. They were still it was still all about politics. It wasn't until you know the Colombians started to pay attention. Uh, you know, part of it too is that Bahamas were just so shitty at dealing drugs <laughs> that um, they needed somebody else who was better. And and, and Jamaica, we always try harder. <laughs> yeah, they, they, and that's the drugs was one of the things that actually separated the gangs from politics because they had they just realized they could make a lot more money and 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 take greater charge of their sort of their lives by just turning into criminal dons. Yeah, yeah. but that was a, 76 was a turning point even in that regard. Right. But they, these leaders, they, these dons, as you mm. call them, uh, who are essentially, the, the, they were like the kind of unofficial mayors of these neighborhoods. Yeah. So one you've called Copenhagen City. Copenhagen City, and now there's is the eight, eight lanes. lanes. Yeah, which actually relate to real Yeah, re I mean, I forget, you know, Tivoli Gardens, Copenhagen City, I was being cute. Um, eight lanes, Matthews Lane, it was based on that. And these dons are based on characters who existed, not necessarily one person in specific, but certainly quite a few. Some of them are sort of composites. But these guys, you know, in their neighborhoods, they were Robin Hoods that, you know, they, they took care of the communities. They, there was no crime in these neighborhoods and, and so on. But outside of these neighborhoods, even one of the sympathetic characters, Papalo, was still wanted on four counts of murder. Right. And the, the only time they caught him, it was acquitted, and acquitted because they just basically killed all the witnesses. Yeah. So it was these were not heroes, even though they were heroes to their communities. Yeah, yeah. So th all those people, these people were regarded as heroes. They were mm. also, frankly, willing to kill, and they had a history of, of killing. Absolutely, they were absolutely willing to be totally bloodthirsty, which is one of the things that drew the Colombians. Right. Because they, the, and which then it really exploded into the eighties and into the early nineties that the Jamaicans weren't afraid to basically walk up to a bus and shoot the first person that comes out to prove they can do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and that's, you know, that's, that's the kind of monsters that politics created. Yeah. Maybe you could, uh, uh, I mean, Bam Bam is one of the characters who, mm -hmm. who shows himself, well, he's not, he's not a leader, but he's, he's part, no. of, uh, part of it, and he shows himself willing to kill. Do you want to give us right. a sense of his voice? Yeah, this is a scene where Bam Bam's initiation into the, the seven, where he has to just kill somebody. So there's a body, there's a person waiting there and he has to kill him. And the person who opens it is the head, the head Don, John, the upcoming Don, Josie Wales, telling him that he needs to shoot this guy. You see how Rima boy live good? You think he can buy them jeans here? Yeah? It's Fioruchi jeans this, you know? You see what 30 pieces of silver can buy a Rima boy? Josie Wales, no label. Most of him clothes, him woman get out her job at the factory and ship that ship back to America. You want this? Then grow some bomber clap balls. Right now, he say, and shove the gun in my hand. I hear the boy crying. He hail from Rima, and I don't know anybody from there, so. Wouldn't know anybody from the eight lanes either if I see him. Right now, Josie Wales say. Gun weight is a different kind of weight. Or maybe it be something else. A feeling that whenever you hold a gun, it's really the gun holding you. No, I'm a deal with the two of you, Josie Wales say. 
me walk right over to the boy and smell him sweat and piss and something else and pull the trigger. The boy don't scream or shout or ugh like when Harry Callahan kill a boy. He just jerk and dead and the gun jerked my hand so hard but the shot didn't sound like when Dirty Harry fire shot. Where the echo go on so long it don't end with the movie. The shot was two boards slapped together that push your ears quick then gone like a lick from a hammer. Yeah, and that's <laughs> that's one that's of a number of uh, of instant. <laughs> there are a little more than seven killings in there. There are plen plenty of killings. <laughs> seven ki seven key killings, and, mm. and I didn't have you counted how many other killings there are in the book. I can't remember. I think there might be seventy-two, but I might be wrong. <laughs> I might be wrong. Yeah, <laughs> you're not afraid to talk about talk about death <laughs> in the book. Okay, mm. um, and so the, the 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 narrative drives forward towards mm. this concert, which Bob Marley is going to give. Mm -hmm. uh, as a kind of an act of peace and the plans that, that they're hatching mm -hmm. to assassinate Bob Marley right before yeah before and, and it drives mm -hmm. up towards it drives up towards um, shall I read the other section yeah. uh, well the, the, the thing is the assassination attempt ends up affecting a lot more than seven people some people were involved in it and some people were just in the wrong place at the wrong time and one of them is Nina Burgess who um, at the time was just sort of stalking Bob Marley because she wanted some money to pay for a fake visa. And being in the wrong place in the wrong time, she witnesses the whole shootout and runs into hiding. So in the, in the course of the book, she takes out all sorts of pseudonyms. And in this section, she's now Kim Clark. And uh, this is one of the raunchy bits. I just want to tell you. <laughs> so this, this is a part where she's in a nightclub. And uh, this was kind of inspired by the Rolling Stones song, Some Girls where Mick Jagger goes into all different ethnicities of women he's had sex with. So this is about a black woman who goes into the different white men she's had sex with. So. Brace yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> all of them come through Montana's. White men, that is. If the man is French, he thinks he gets away with saying cunt by saying you cunt because we bush bitches will never catch his drift. As soon as he sees you, he will throw the keys at your feet, saying, Park my car, maintenant, dépêche-toi. I take the keys and say, Yes, massa. Then I go around to the woman's bathroom and flush it down the shittiest toilet. If he's British and under 30, then his teeth are still hanging on. And he'll be charming enough to get you upstairs, but too drunk to do anything. He won't care and you won't either, unless he vomits on you and leaves a few pounds on the dresser because that was such dreadful, dreadful business. If he's British and over 30, you spend the whole time watching the stereotypes pile up. From the, let me speak to you slowly, darling, because you're just a little black, speed off the speech, to the horrible teeth coming from that cup of cocoa right before bed. If he's German, he'll be thin, and he will know how to fuck. Well, in a car piston sort of way. <laughs> but he will stop early because nobody can make German sexy. If he's Italian, he'll know how to fuck too. But he probably didn't bathe before. Things are such a thing as an affectionate face slap and will leave money even though you told him you're not a prostitute. If he's Australian, he'll just, he'll just lie back and let you do all the work because even us blokes in Sydney have heard about you Jamaican girls. If he's Irish, he'll make you laugh and he'll make the dirtiest thing sound sexy. But the longer you stay, the longer he drinks. And the longer he drinks, well, for each of those seven days, you get seven different kinds of monster. Fantastic. Fighting words. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, you know, 
when you're in a tourist country, when you're in a tour, when you li- you grow up in a tourist destination, you see a lot of people, usually at their worst behavior. So <laughs> and that's what she ends up being in in 1978. This part it's now 1978, yeah. and she's so far removed from the whole shooting. She mm-hmm. is indeed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so w- what we're trying to set up here, this is these are complex novels and they're incredibly, uh, you know, y- yours is called All Involved for, for good reasons, but, but it's, they're very involving novels and, and to try to cover the, the, the journey across them in the course of, of uh, this hour is going to mm-hmm. be hard. So we want to try and set up this m- multi-voices, uh, but I hope we, you're starting to get a sense of mm-hmm. L.A. burning, Jamaica, you know, in this crazy anarchic... Not mm-hmm. quite burning, but but sort of you know, drug fueled mm-hmm. situation. Um, so, l- I really, I want to ask both of you now, and we'll come back to some more voices in yep. a minute. But, but why did you choose events in recent history that that still exist in journalism, in journalistic print? Mm-hmm. Why did you need to turn them into novels, Ryan? I think for me, it started with really just wanting to write a character. And I wanted to write Payasa more than I've ever wanted to write, I think, any character I've ever written. And at the time, uh, I was speaking to quite a few uh, former gang members, and all male, and they all told me, you can't do that. Women weren't involved. You, you know, y- you can't do that. And I, I took that very personally, because I was already fairly aware that, that I was dealing with a culture that's not my own. And, and it was... It, I took it very seriously in terms of being respectful and, and, and honorable, and, and yet I, I went home that day completely depressed, uh, and I just thought, fine, you know, I'll let it go, I'll, I'll do something else, but I couldn't. I still heard her voice, and it just got to the point where I decided I needed something that would give her the freedom to act as she wanted to act, and that was the 92 LA riots. And I think by that time, you know, I'd spoken to enough people, it was, it was firefighters, it was nurses, uh, highway patrol, people that I knew there were so many uh, takes, perspectives on the riots that hadn't been covered in journalism, hadn't been covered in documentaries or live on TV when it was happening, or, or even in quite a few really wonderful nonfiction books, because I read all of them. So to be able to actually talk to people and, and, and just get some sense of what was happening in these areas of LA where we still have no clue. Uh, it w- was was really uh, fascinating and interesting, and I just I, I just wrote it, and I went back to those same people, and I said, I, I'm sorry, I had to write it, I had to write her, and then I told them her story, orally, and they just listened, and every single one of them uh, said, Wow, I, I get it, I, I like her, and <laughs> and then that was that was like a tacit acknowledgement yeah, right. that I could go with it. So this was yeah, this was. Payasa, who's the woman who wants to avenge the, the, the murder of her brother. Yeah. Uh, and you've given her permission to go in and blow some guy's brains out at, at, a, at a party. Yeah? And you, you even make us feel sympathetic about mm. her mm. doing that. Um, d- d- is this based on a real character, or is it, have you made up Payasa? Is, is she a oh construction no, she, of a number of existences? I, no, she, she's completely made up. I mean, I, uh, one of my very best friends, uh, that whom I've known for a very long time, grew up in a gang. Uh, but you would never know it of her. You know, she has two college degrees. She she's taught in prisons, like all of these things. But um, nobody knows like what her life was like before that, except for me. And I think that, that her voice has always kind of stuck with me, just in terms of uh, the the rhythms, the word choice. Um, but as it 
is it her? Absolutely not. It's, it's definitely this girl who grew up in Linwood at this time, who was very much a low totem pole gang member until something so awful happens that someone has to do something about it. And she does, she decides it's, it's my turn. I have to do this. He was my older brother. I'm going to take care of this. Yeah. So, so she takes loads of drugs before she goes in there and, and she, they, they are offered to her and, and she's <laughs> not really uh, familiar with it, but one of the other, uh, older gang members who is very much the, the, the muscle and a hired gun, he offers her PCP. And she says, what's, what's this? What's, what's mm-hmm. this for? And he just says, it makes it easier. She says, makes what easier? He says, everything. Mm. Yeah. I, it, it, it unfortunately, I think that, and, and I think this might also connect with, with a brief history and what Marlon is talking about. I mean, the, uh, L.A. in the late 80s, early 90s was awash with, with drugs, whether Clearly, it was crack, yeah. PCP, you know, anything. Yeah. And that was a huge, huge problem, but it was also fuel for violence. Yeah. 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 So just before we move on to you, Marlon, do you feel that the, this voice hasn't been told before? That, that you know, w- was Payasa or, or the, these Latino voices not represented properly in, in the journalism of the day? Is that, was that the well? I, I mean, because because who's going to ask L- Latinos? You know, at the yeah. time, you know, it being '92, uh, Rodney King being African American, every single police officer except for one uh, being white. You know, that was the narrative, mm-hmm. and they ran with it. But you know, LA is one of the most diverse cities on earth, if not the most diverse city on earth in '92 and today. You know, over 90 languages spoken, 144 different nationalities represented. I mean, it, it, it's enormous. And, and I just wanted to give some sense of just how many facets there are. And, and I think it's also fairly safe to say that, you know, generally speaking, although we have a pretty good hold on what the African-American gangs were up to at that time, whether the Bloods and the Crips, you know, there, there is all kinds of Hollywood fiction associated with that. Yeah. Uh, there, there isn't really with the latino gangs and i and that's for a good reason they don't talk right and they you talk know to you well they talk to <laughs> me because i sat down with people and i said i am in no way interested in doing nonfiction. i write fiction yeah and that was a really into like that got people to sit down with me and then we went from there and yet like Irvin welsh's characters in train spotting these these characters are stories who make it who feel true they feel real mm-hmm. and similarly with you Marlon. Mm-hmm. Why, why did you need to tell this story, 1976, Bob Marley? You know, we, we know about Bob yeah. Marley. Yeah, it's funny when you're talking about um, the character getting drugs, because all the, the, the boys before they kill, they try to kill Marley, are also fed drugs. They also, um, but why, um, it's funny, because that was not a story I in- intended to tell at all. Is that right? No, the first, the first page, the first paragraph I ever wrote in this book is now on page 458. It's, it wasn't supposed to be that at all. It was about to be. It was about this sort of, this sort of this gay Chicago hitman going through boyfriend issues. Okay, yeah. As he tries to. That's a great section, by the way. <laughs> as he tries to kill this this Jamaican target, who he only got because he messed up the shot in Miami, and the drug done in Miami says, "You better kill this guy, or I'll kill you." So I was fully intending on writing this sort of noir crime novella, actually. I wasn't okay. even intending to write a big book. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the, the Marley part was almost incidental because I, I knew the story of some of the guys. And because of that, it's, it's, it's amazing how Marley has a way of dominating anything he enters, even now. And he kind of sort of took over the story. The more, the more, the problem is, the more I uncovered ni- 1976s, the more it became a bigger story. And it, it happened almost by accident, because what was happening with this novel 
was I kept writing these one-person novels and kept running into dead ends with them. Um, Bam Bam was a novel by itself at one point. The Hitman was a novel by itself at one point. I just couldn't go further than, say, page 50 or 60. And I, I would love to take credit for it, but it was a friend of mine who says, you idiot, you have a novel. I was like, this is all one, you know, this is one story. I was like, no, it's not. It's a series of failed novels that I'm about to delete. <laughs> I was like, no, it's, 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 she said, I never forgot, she says, what makes you think this is only one person's story? And then she said, when last have you read As I Lay Dying? Right. And that's when it, happened, it, it sort of took off. The, the Marley thing ended up being the trigger that sort of sent, you know, the story kind of reeling all the way to 19... To 1991, it really is sort of the loosest book I've ever written. I, I didn't have an overall structure for this when I started. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, right. and it's um, and again, it was I I, tr I tried to write my shortest novel. Six hundred and eighty. It's it's yeah, but it's um, I think even more than Marley. One of the things when I, when when the story started to take shape, then I really had some questions. And the, 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 the biggest one wasn't even Marley, it was what the hell happened in 1976. And most of the novel is trying to make sense of that year. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What happened and the consequences that spill all the way to 86, 88, 91. Right. And that's what really, really got me as, because I was a kid in 1976. I had no idea what was going on. So realizing that how how traumatic it was and I wasn't aware made me very curious about it and trying to figure it out. That's amazing because it, it seems to me that, you know, that they're, they're in both of the, the novels, although they're based on historical events, there's an, a, a great narrative arc to them. You know, they're mm -hmm. driving towards a kind of conclusion. <laughs> and in your case, Marlon, it seems to me that, that, that there's a, a killing in a crack den. I'm not sure if, uh, if you, you mind me going that far. Oh, that's far. That's it's, fine. It's a historical fact. Mm -hmm. There's a killing in a crack den. Which all these events around Bob Marley and the gangs who were involved in trying to kill Bob Marley in 1976, mm -hmm. it kind of drives towards um, 1985. Yeah. And, and this cracked in killing, right? Because some of the Twitter guys, Twitter, the, the, the guys involved in the killing went on to, were the heads of these, do, the, the head dons, and they went on to, because the killing really impressed the Colombians. So it, they went on to become the major enforcers of the crack trade in the 80s, which is one of the reasons why the in novel. In New York. In New York. New York, Miami, D.C., Vermont, a whole bunch of places. And uh, they impressed him so much. Uh, you know, the Cali cartel said, Jamaicans, handle London. So, <laughs> so th then we had the Yardies and all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it just became this, this, this huge, you know, um, sort of culture of violence that just then exported itself. Because yeah. it, it just got too big for Jamaica. Yeah. But that's how the novel ends up in the States, mostly, because the, the crack trade you know, came straight, exp you know, exported itself, and it just exploded in New York and Miami. Right. And although, of course, sorry, mm -hmm. although, of course Jamaica you know, used to be a British colony, mm -hmm. you might imagine if, if these guys were going to leave, they might come to Britain. They mm -hmm. didn't. They went to New York. And yeah, that was a big shift. I think up to the mid-'70s, if we talk about anybody from the Caribbean migrating, it's a British narrative. And most of the novels, you, yeah, they, they, it was usually you came to London. I think the 70s saw the shift where the, the place you went was, it was the States, when there's just so many, so many places you could go. Yeah. And yeah, that, that was a big shift. Um, culturally as well, where that was a, the 
America took over as a bigger cultural influence. Yeah, yeah. And so, you, and you get Josie Wales, who, who was one of the key guys. Not it was it was a sub don mm-hmm. in Copenhagen City in the novel. He becomes uh, an he becomes guy. the head don and enforcer, and he spreads the, the trade to to New York. But yeah. his name is based off a Clint Eastwood movie. Is so, that right? Yeah, the outlaw yeah, Josie Wales. Okay. Yeah. I wish I knew more about Clint Eastwood movies. So <laughs> I get that reference. They, get, they get referenced all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <They're like> <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, the novel is full of references to music. And it, we'll, we'll come on to that in a mm. second. But let, let's just get to Josie Wales. Um, is there a section you can read so we can get... Because he's such a key part of the... Oh, sure. Uh, uh, this section towards the, the crack den killing. This is, this is Josie Wales for the first time visiting his own crack house. <laughs> um, he's never been there before. So he's standing outside... He's looking at his great creation when suddenly we hear, Motherfucker, you better give me all of that shit. All of that shit. I turn around and smell him first. Sweat, shit, and vomit. Newspaper trunk popping all over his hair. Black man in a coat and scratching him left leg. The other hand holding a gun at my face. He squint like he in pain. Look right and left quick then back at me. Still scratching his leg. I can't tell for sure, but it looked like he barefoot. He leaning from one foot to the other and squeezes his thigh together like he's stopping himself from pissing. You think I'm playing, motherfucker? I look like I'm playing? I'm a boss of capping your motherfucking ass just like that. Let go of that shit. He waved the gun again. Let go of that shit, he said. I pulled some bill out of my front pocket. I, about, I was about to reach for my wallet when he snatched the money out of my hand. I look at him as he pointed the gun at my face. I watch him pull the trigger. Before I even braced myself, it hit my forehead and trickled down my face. Water. No. Piss. <laughs> so he's just been shot in the face with piss, and that annoys him so much that he then goes this on. This is Krakow's. So <laughs> <laughs> it's madness, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> absolutely wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, 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 there's a real sense of a narrative arc and a kind of an end point and, and mm-hmm. the novel ends up in 1991 in a way which I won't say but I urge you to read it to find out what happens mm-hmm. similarly with you Ryan there's a sense of, of this kind of six day riots um, which are you know LA's burning and, and and yet underneath this there's a kind of unfolding story I mean, it starts with Payasa and her anger about Ernesto's death and, and it seems to end up with a kind of coming to terms with all this violence uh, one thing that struck me was, was uh, the story towards the end of, of a, a guy who does a graffiti who's kind of trying to make sense of all this, all this violence and, and in a way try, trying to forgive it, trying to make sense of it, mm-hmm. trying to make sense of, of a, a, a murder of a particular character. Um, is, there, is there a part you can read us which sure. gives a sense of that? He's also trying to avoid it. I mean... Trying to w- avoid it? Yeah. Uh, he is, it was such a fascinating time in L.A., you know, um, it was a time when graffiti was so wildly out of control that graffiti crews started carrying guns and started acting like gangs, and then they were called tag bangers. And then the gangs decided, well, you can't do that anymore. That's bad for our business. So they basically issued an ultimatum, which was simply, you you can keep painting, but you're going to be in our gang, or we can kill you. And this particular character knows how violence is a dead end. His dad used to run everything, and now he's in prison for life. And so he's been given the ultimatum, which is you need to, to get in the gang or leave. And, and he decides to go on one last spree and, and really 
uh, try to paint a tribute piece uh, to Ernesto Payasa's brother. Maybe it's a good goodbye, but maybe, maybe it's not a big enough ending, not over the top enough. People will probably say I ranked out, but whatever. I never signed up for that other thing, that gangster thing. I always just wanted to be free. I just wanted to go all city, hitting Hollywood and downtown and Venice and writing C's under my name everywhere I go like Euler and Decline because it's my golden time with just turning 17. This is my time to take it all the way and be famous. And now it's gone. Just like Ernesto. Something people don't understand about graffiti is it's a way to be somebody. It's a way to piss people off and it's a way to claim your territory, but it's also a way to remember. And I did that last one for Ernesto and the city that killed him. Ernie, R.I.P., the back of that bus says. It's letters, sure, but it means something more. It's a middle finger and a headstone all rolled into one. That's great. And uh, this is at the time, of course, when, when every train in L.A. was completely covered with oh graffiti, yeah. right? And, not, and not just trains. I mean, the buses were the thing in 92 because if you can get on a bus, it takes MTA about two weeks to clean it. So it's going <laughs> all over the city. So the, the riders were feeling like, I'm famous. You uh-huh. know, people, people see me in yeah. you know, East Los and they see me in, on the west side. And, and they were scratching the windows as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Mm. Um, okay, so... Uh, one thing I'm, that's, that's bugging me, and when you read these books, you'll understand why. You guys have had to get inside the minds of some pretty brutal people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Drug taking, there's some very brutal sex, there's rape. Okay, I mean, how much, how much research did you have to do <laughs> <laughs> in terms of drug taking and guns? Oh, good, because that sounded really weird after rape. <laughs> But, but really, yeah. uh, how, how, did you do, how did you get yourself into the minds of these really difficult people? Mm. In I think, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. Um, Philip Cly has this great essay in the New York Times called After War, A Failure of the Imagination. Mm. And his big argument was that people choose not to empathize. That you, can, you can very well figure out how bad war is. You don't have to go to war to know how bad it is. You choose not to. And I think a lot of it was choosing to, to be in these really, really uncomfortable um, spaces. I, to, me, to me, writing is, writing is work. And um, I, like, I, when I'm writing, I am so, I'm so dead as a personality that it's just the characters. Um, I, yeah, I don't interfere. I, I, as far as I'm concerned, I'm pretty much just their receptionist. So you're channeling the, the yeah. ideas of these characters. Yeah, and uh, because I've done the whole thing where I'm going to, no, I'm the author, damn it. This is how I want a story to go. And that's not what I did with this. So a lot of it was just really letting it go. That at the same time, there are parts of this book that did scare me and did disturb me. And, and at some points, I, uh, the only way I could get through it was I'll leave it until my editor chops it. <laughs> Your editor didn't chop it. He didn't chop. I ended up <laughs> chopping 10,000 words out of it. Wow. Which he objected to. But that was because it was. It was. It's not. It's not. It's not. It's, it's, it never gets easy. And I don't think it should. No. Uh, because then you become numb to the, the violence and the, the, the brutality that you write about. It should be brutal. And it's not something to, to sort of glaze over. But... Um, I mean, there's one, one particularly poignant scene which I, mm. I can think about. Uh, 
in which inside that the the crack den that, mm. that where where Josie's just had had piss sprayed in his face, he mm. goes in and he shoots a guy, and a woman is is giving him a blowjob, mm-hmm. and the woman has she's obviously a she a crack whore, mm-hmm. so she's high, and she, she's giving him a blowjob, and the guy's just been shot, okay, so. Mm. And she's desperately trying to make him come because she knows she won't get paid unless he comes. Right, so she doesn't know he's dead. She just thinks he's gone limp. He's gone limp, right? And she's just going, get back up, get back up. I need the money. And the poignant thing is, of course, that is on her back is a little baby. It's a kid, it's her baby. Right. So the baby's still on her back and she's trying to, and she has no idea this guy is dead. Because she's just so consuming. But I mean, um, so she's presumably so out of yeah. her head as well. Yeah, but. Um, you know, part of it too is you also run the risk of the FBI monitoring your searches. Right. Because I, I type in some really disturbing imagine. stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, how to give a blowjob while on crack. Yeah, but yeah, you end up doing researching stuff. Also, you can just ask. Who? <laughs> <laughs> You know, you're, you know, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I didn't ask prostitutes, but I know quite a few drug addicts. Right. Okay. And you know, my year when I grew up in Jamaica in the eighties, that's when crack hit, and crack, unlike in, unlike New York, crack was a very rich person's drug, so a lot of my friends were on it. So it what is is yeah you have to you 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 have to do a lot of research you have to ask the questions people want to ask. I've done that t- thing as well where uh, that Ryan did. It's a, it's a novel. You're not gonna appear in it. Yeah, and yeah, some people are more they 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 sort of um, their backs you know their backs aren't up as high, but um, yeah, it was a lot of research, a lot of question asking, and some of it I just kind of knew because I grew up in it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You, what about you? <laughs> Again, lots and lots of uh, very brutal shootings. You know, you describe, I mean, rather rather beautifully, the sound that it makes. The sound a gun really makes. Mm-hmm. Both of you do that, yeah. You know, and it's different from what you see on the, here on TV. You also describe very eloquently what happens when a bullet goes into somebody's head and, and blows <laughs> the back of the head off. Rand's answering this question. You know, <laughs> you describe the, the pattern that the blood makes and, and when mm-hmm. it sprays onto the wall behind. You, you, do, you talk about bits of brain. You know, this is graphic stuff that you have had to imagine and, and write down mm-hmm. in sentences. How did you get yourself in that place, Ryan? Well, I'm, I'm a survivor of violence. When right. I was 17 years old, I was uh, hit so hard in the face it tore my nose out. I had two facial reconstructive surgeries. Uh, they wanted to do a third. I said no. I, I couldn't do it. Uh, it was about a year before I could properly smell and taste again. And you know, I, after doing about four months of research with, with some former Latino gang members. I was summoned by someone who had quite a bit of um, weight at that time. And it was basically, it was made clear to me that, uh, you know, if you don't impress this person, you know, you don't get to talk to anybody ever again. But the person who told me about it said, don't worry, you know, like, don't worry, if you say the wrong thing, he'll get up, he'll walk away, you'll never see him again. Nothing will happen to you. But something might happen to me. 
And wow. that was just the heaviest weight, you know, but I carried it into that meeting. I never once even considered missing it. And, you know, I was sitting across from someone who, who very obviously had a, a tremendous scar. And I just thought at some point I have to tell this person the story of what happened to me when I was 17 years old. I just had to make it clear to him that I was in no way interested in glorifying violence. I've been through it. I, I've, I've done PT. I've been in the hospital bed. I, I know how it goes. And it was amazing how my story kind of created a bridge between us. It wasn't about the fact that I was a white boy from Colorado anymore or that he was a Latino guy from Linwood. You know, it was about being human together. Yeah. And I, because of the success of that one moment, and obviously he said it was okay for me to keep talking to people, I, I, I tended to tell people the story right away. And, and over time, and this is just, this is, I think this is generally true, stories of trauma, if you're sharing, occasionally you will get things back. And, uh, you know, I, I, would, I would always say, look, I, ca I cannot know what you did, but, you know, I, I was curious, you know, what is the thought process? How did it feel? You know, I, uh, people told me, hey, this is what it feels like to be stabbed. This is what it feels like to be shot. And it's those details, I think, that, that they, they kind of embedded mm -hmm. in, in my subconscious. And I, oh, man, I was not sleeping well, ever. I think this entire time I was writing the book, um, it was a very difficult, I think, space to be in. But I did not want to shortchange uh, the living hell that some of these people lived yeah uh, and and I just I did my best to portray it in a way that I knew was real that passed my gut test because if it passed my gut test I mm -hmm. knew it would pass other people's uh, and, and beyond that I, I couldn't judge yeah I had to let the reader judge right yeah. and one one characteristic of this first person testimony that, that, that you're going through is, is that, you know, in the opening chapter of the book, you know, you're, you're reading this, the, this testimony of a guy who's, who's being beaten up, okay? He's being stabbed. And you're thinking, well, you know, he, I'm reading his testimony, which is clearly, you know, clearly he survived this act of brutality. Mm -hmm. And then it cha chapter one ends mid-sentence mm -hmm. when you realize he didn't survive, you know, the, the murder has happened and you've, you've been inside his voice actually experiencing the, the murder and that's not a plot spoiler because that's chapter one mm -hmm. you know he dies um and so that that's what i mean about actually you having to be inside these characters heads you know and how mm -hmm. hard that must have been for you well, I, I can't tell you how hard it was to have to sit across from people and hear them tell me what it's like to lose a son an uncle a father a mother an aunt a cousin like the epidemic of violence in in los angeles is astounding over yeah. 3,000 people died in 1992 in Los Angeles. Almost 10 a day. Wow. That's and like I can't, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I can't, I know I've quoted a lot of numbers here, but that's not how my brain works. I, yeah. I honestly could not get my head around it. I had to tell the story. That's, that's how I process. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I did this. I'm wearing, you know, the, the city of Linwood seal on my tie tonight. Like this this book is, is for, is for everybody, you know, from mm -hmm. that town who, who had to go through those things. And, and the good news is it, it's better off now, mm -hmm. but it, it, it was a, a terrible time. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the, th one of the effects of reading both of these books, you know, they're long books and they're very immersive. You know, I've, I've immersed myself in mm -hmm. myself personally in two situations in which the state was, was completely out of control. Yeah. In effect. 
Both mm. times uh, it w there was a kind of control, but not by the state. And so mm. society was, in both of these situations, driven by something other than what we normally expect. You know, we, I think whatever, whatever, the way we live, we, we, we kind of expect there to be a, a certain kind of order that we mm. will respect one another. But here we are with these two, two situations which are out of control. It's out of control, and it's a weird kind of out of control because it's organized crime. Right. So it's, 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 it's a kind of control. And uh, what have, and this is not in the book, but what happens, what happens in Jamaica is that you get to the point where you have to choose the hell you want. So do you want, it's bad, but do you want organized crime or disorganized crime? And, we, and after a while, you just choose organized crime. Right. Because at least we know nobody will get raped. We'll be extorted till we're poor, but nobody's going to get raped or so on. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, it's, yes, and you, you, especially when you start to think this is, how, this is what normal life is. Um, very, I think rarely do people in, in, in my book have any sort of self-awareness that this is hell. They just go, this is life. This is, this how is life. Because they have no, yeah. nothing to compare it to. They have nothing to compare it to. Um, Bam Bam thinks is, this is normal. Mm -hmm. You are supposed to wake up one day and your parents get shot. Yeah. And so on. It's, he, he has das, das equilibrium. That's normal. Yeah, yeah. He has to go and kill someone to, as his initiation. Yeah. yeah. And, and, he, and, and, and the thing, he, he, he's more interested in the sound effects of a shooting because all he knows is film. Yeah. Says, oh, I thought it was going to sound kapow. And it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, so it's, um, and, and it, yeah, but I think also, though, because they look at these worlds as normal that even in, in, in the violence, I think there's also beauty and I think there's also humor. And, and, um, Weirdly, I think you're right. <laughs> it might sound a bit perverse to, to well, say so. I think so because I think, because then it becomes just a relentlessly oppressive story. And I think when you're telling really, really dark stories, comic relief becomes important and light scenes become important and and even just stuff where nina is joking about how men have sex yeah um you know become they become important because even because it's it's you don't want to end up with this kind of pornography of violence no no exactly and neither, also, neither yeah. of you indulge in that i should mm -hmm. say even though that you do describe violence it's, n it's never uh, pornography pornographic mm -hmm. violence and so you ryan you have you have this wonderful almost love story which runs through between a nurse called gloria Mm -hmm. and the Croatian firefighter whose voice you, you gave us earlier on. So that's, there's a sense of kind of tenderness coming through it. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's because what I found, you know, not just talking with people, but, but reading the research at the time, you know, it, it, the darkness, you know, makes certain things incandescent. And, and those things are hope and love and family and loyalty, you know, th those things shine so much more brightly in, in dark situations. And, and that's really what I, I tried to do uh, yeah. with the book was, was find those moments where, where people put their entire spirits, their entire hearts behind trying to find a good solution when there mm -hmm. are so many bad ones. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, it's taken us ages to try and set this out, but and <laughs> I, I we haven't left us ourselves very long for your questions. But I'm keen to find out whether you have any questions. So, Claire, do you want to bring the lights up? And there's a roving mic. Has anybody got any, anything they're burning to ask or say? Or ah, there's one in the front row here. Hi. How does it feel now when it's over? It's written. It's published. Mm -hmm. What does that feel like? 
it's it, i don't know for me it's always really for me it's always really empty it's almost this kind of postpartum depression in a way <laughs> Because, uh, you know, I spent four years writing this book and I, when I write, I take forever beginning a novel because I know what happens once I start. I just move on and I don't stop until I finish. I will finish writing a book and look around and go, when did you get kids? It's like, <laughs> honestly, it's, I'm that immersive. Usually when people say this, I took four years to write a novel. I really took two and just played around for two years. I did nothing but this. So to, when it's done, I'm happy and I'm sort of relieved. And also kind of, I, one of the reasons why I don't think I write sequels is because I don't want to go back to that territory again. But there's also a really huge depression that comes when I finish a book. And I usually write what I call rebound books. And there are these novels I write right afterwards that are terrible. <laughs> we'll know to watch out and not invite you for the next one. Oh my one. God. <laughs> no, I never published them, thank okay. God. <laughs> Ryan, how, how does it feel now to have this published? You know, honestly, it, it, it feels wonderful because for me, this is, this is my first book in 10 years, and I honestly thought I would not be a writer again. Uh, so it's, it, it's wonderful, but I think it's primarily wonderful in, in seeing the reactions of the folks who took the time to talk to me. You know, I, and you know, I sat down with a, a really prominent tattoo artist from Linwood recently, and, and I said, so, so talk to me like, how is the hood taking the book? Like, yeah. is it okay? What's going on? And he said, man, you know, it's, it's burning up. Like, it's, it's never available at the library. You know, people are stealing it. People are passing <laughs> it around. And I'm like, wow, that's, I think that's, I think the joy of it actually being available and readable and, and consumable, I think, in, in, a, in a beautiful way. And so in a way, it's kind of given your life new meaning to, to Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Got a question over there at the Hi, I haven't uh, yet managed to read either of your novels, although they're on the list, but mm -hmm. I have dipped in and out of both of them, and I'm really interested. I wonder if you could both say something about how you negotiate the, the, the English language, because you're both mm -hmm. writing mm -hmm. out of communities where you know formal English is not what is being used or spoken. It's, I have to say mm -hmm. it's something that I think is familiar to a lot of Scottish writers because we have to negotiate a language mm -hmm. that doesn't actually sound or look like the language that we hear on the streets or that we use mm -hmm. ourselves. Mm -hmm. And Great I just question. wondered, uh, you, you, both the novels seem very, very rich in, in mm -hmm. a, a different kind of language. I wonder if you maybe could say something about that. Well, uh, in, in, in my novel, language even becomes an obsession in the book. Um, the whole idea of what is speaking proper. Because Jamaica has a very, uh, this idea of what is proper English, and proper English is Victorian English. It's not even 20th century British. So we, when I, after I finished, um, I mean, did English language in school, I realized I sounded like Dickens to English people. <laughs> so, so we, and, and throughout the book, there is, there, it, it, you know, I was really interested in the way in which language is used as class warfare mm. in Jamaica. All the characters talk about this person chat bad. Uh, you know, uh, Josie Wales is about to shoot somebody and says, the one thing I can't stand is when people chat bad. And he doesn't speak very well either. <laughs> so it, but it's because it's told by voice, and in Jamaica, voice is really important, and dialect is important, and your English is important. So it be, that becomes sort of even the, the, the same concern. How English is my English? Um, what do we do with Pato? Uh, you know, the, 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 one of the characters in the book, 
she does she 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 has maintained such a fake persona that it's not until the person realized you're not just from Jamaica, you're from country. And is and it wasn't until they have a bonding moment. It says, you know, what you know, something that some man keeps chatting her up and it says, What what do you tell the man? And she just start cross spear bumbleclot. And it becomes this huge relief for her to finally be herself in America, speaking pato. So it becomes, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, language becomes a tool, it's a weapon, it's a way to shut people out, bring people in. But in the end, it becomes this sort of community. But it's always tripping up what we consider standard English. Okay, yeah. not much time, so let's just mm -hmm. get a word from you, Ryan. Then. Sure, I, you know, I, I found during the process of, of speaking with people, uh, you know, I, I did seven years of Spanish, but it's a lot different, you know, to be on the streets of Los Angeles talking to people who, you know, use elements of Spanglish, they use a tremendous amount of slang, and half the time I'm sitting there going, you know, what, what is happening? And I am unfortunately that person who says, well, you know, what is this and what is that? And, you know, I, 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 I'll never forget, you know, one, one particular guy said, you know, you, you have a great ear, but you're not really hearing it, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was... <laughs> an awesome thing to say, <laughs> and it was so true. Uh, the key, I think, for me was was to find what felt like true, driven conversation, what felt like real, lived Angelino English, and and if I could get that, uh, then it would be not just uh, elucidating the time, but but showing character and, and also showing a culture that mm -hmm. has been tremendously ignored. I mean, there are a number of characters in the book who talk about how, you know, Jimmy Smith's on L.A. Law is the only Latino that people ever see in L.A., especially <laughs> outside of L.A. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, great question. Ooh. We haven't even got to talk about music, which, <laughs> which is so important in, in your novels. But we've had lots of sirens. We have, yeah, yeah. yeah. It sounds like there's a peace concert going on out, out <laughs> the back. I'm, in, I'm feeling it. <laughs> uh, We've run out of time. I'm so sorry. We mm -hmm. could have gone on for a long time. But l let me just really tell you that these are big books, immersive, terrifying, brilliant, exciting, but above all, important books that I want you to, to read. I really want you to read them. Um, so let's carry on the conversation up in the mm -hmm. bookshop where both Ryan and Marlon will be signing books. Um, thank you so much for talking to us about them today. Please give them a huge round of applause. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.